Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Stephanie Russo, author of the book The Afterlife of Anne Boleyn, Representations of Anne Boleyn in Fiction and on the Screen. Stephanie, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi Mark, how are you? I'm doing very well, thanks for asking. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Um, brilliant, beautiful day in Sydney, so I'm, in, I'm enjoying myself and really looking forward to meeting you. <laughs> thanks, that's very flattering. Uh, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, I am a senior lecturer in the Department of English at Macquarie University, which is in Sydney, Australia. I started out as an 18th century specialist, 18th century uh, literature specialist, but my career has recently taken a sort of U-turn into historical fiction, and that's um, the space that certainly this book is, is within. Okay. What was it that led you to write a book in particular about the representation of Anne Boleyn in fictional works? Well, I I suppose I'd always been interested in Anne Boleyn, even as a child. And that's something that a lot of people have said to me in the process of writing this book. When I've been talking to people about writing this book, people will come up to me and say, well, I've always been interested in Anne since (laughs) I was, you know, a little girl or a little boy. And that was certainly my experience, although I don't remember actually where it came from. Um, I don't remember the first book or the first time I had been introduced to Anne's story. I just, it was always there as something I was interested in. But how it came about kind of academically is that I, as I said, I was in the 18th century space and I actually contributed a chapter to another book on representations of Anne Boleyn in the 18th century as a way of kind of marrying up my academic career and my kind of lay interest in Anne Boleyn. And as, a pre- in the, as part of kind of researching that chapter, I became aware of the volume of material out there about Anne Boleyn in terms of fictional representations. And I became quite obsessed with it and figuring out why (laughs) there was so much material. And, um, you know, I was reading it, even though I sort of shouldn't have been. (laughs) I was kind of distracting myself by reading all of this stuff. And so I thought, there's a book here. And yeah, and next thing I knew, I was writing a book on it. And that was 
three and a half years ago now. So yeah, it's been a quite a long journey. I can't help but think that you have pointed to maybe the the the, the, the why it is that you know, you got interest in Ambulin because it really comes across in your book the degree to which she is seems to be so ubiquitous in fiction that it, I mean now especially in your final chapter you talk about the sheer range of fictional. Uh, areas that she populates, everything from straightforward historical fiction to uh, supernatural fiction to counterfactuals. And that's on top of, of course, of all the non-fictional representations of the period. That Anne Boleyn seems to be there in a way that I can't honestly think of, of you know, whether all of other Henry's other wives put together have anywhere near the, the footprint that she does in our culture today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I was to write an, uh, one of these books, I suppose, about any of the other wives, I would struggle to come up with material. But for Anne, it was a matter of excluding material rather than including material. There is just such a huge wealth of it. And, you know, what I found quite sort of strange, and I suppose we can get to this later, is that the 21st century lists, so I did, you know, lists of, of books from each century that were written about Anne in terms of fiction, drama, poetry. The, the 21st century list is actually longer than the 20th list. Now, obviously, we're in 2021, so we've only had 20 years of uh, 21 years of this century. Um, but the the volume of material is actually accelerating, and so she's had this kind of real perennial appeal. We we never get tired of stories about about Anne Boleyn. There is always this drive to kind of reinterpret her story. And Hilary Mantel once said in a in a lecture that that we can retell it and retell it and retell it, the story of Anne Boleyn, but there still seems to be sort of something missing, you know, some way of understanding it or, or our way of making sense of it is still kind of absent. And I think that is, is a real kind of um, nice way of thinking about it because we do have this drive to kind of retell it and retell it and try and work it out. It, it also seems that one of the other things I took from your book is how Anne Boleyn seems in some ways to be something of a uh, an outline for people to fill in. And, and I was thinking this goes all the way back to the representations of her uh, by the people from her own era, and which is where you start your book. You, you talk about how even in the 16th century, she was uh, a written about figure in, in fiction and, and how various uh, writers uh, took her either uh, in, in name or, you know, t- took the... Uh, you know, the what was obviously Anne Boleyn in all but name, and, and, and wrote about her in, in various ways. What was it that, that, that sparked that? And how was she portrayed by the people who, you know, you know knew her uh, intimately or, 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 knew her, or knew her era intimately? Well, I think a good example to kind of talk that through is Thomas Wyatt. So Thomas Wyatt is uh, the great kind of Tudor poet, um, he was the the man who brought the the form of the the sonnet into the into the English language, and Thomas White knew Anne Boleyn. That is beyond dispute. What is in dispute is whether he was in love with her or a suitor of hers or or whatever. And there's no real way of of knowing that. But um, certainly, what he did do is he wrote many poems in which people have kind of seen Anne Boleyn. But what he's doing is he is writing these poems that seem to be pointing towards Anne Boleyn. And using this idea of the kind of courtly love object. So she's the woman that is desirable, ever desirable, and ever out of reach. right? And her, the most famous po- um, poem in which this happens is a poem of his that starts, Whoso lists to hunt. And it's all about Anne as this kind of doe who is being pursued and chased. and But she has around her neck... Um, the, the slogan in, in uh, Caesar's I Am, okay, and Caesar is being a reference to, to Henry VIII. So you see that 
right from the start, right? Poems written that presumably while she was still alive is that she's embodying this kind of idea. Rather than being a kind of woman in herself, she functions as a kind of symbol and she's a symbol of this, this kind of image of the courtly lady who is spurring the lover on but will never reciprocate the lover's affection. And she's also somebody who's been claimed by another man, a more powerful man. So he's writing in her lifetime. He knows her. He grew up in a sort of similar area than her, so they may or may not have known each other as <laughs> children. Um, and he's still writing about her as this kind of, or he's, he's starting this tradition, really, of writing about her as a kind of symbol, as something embodying something else. Okay, And we don't really get a sense ever in his poetry, even though people have kind of read references um, to Anne Boleyn in a number of his poems, we don't really get a sense of who she might be. Um, we only get a sense of how she might function as a kind of symbol or as a um, an idea in his poetry. And that's really kind of characteristic of the way she's written about in, in the 16th century because as the English Reformation um, happened and, you know, Henry broke from the Catholic Church purportedly because of his desire to marry Anne Boleyn, she becomes a symbol of religious conflict so obviously, if you're um, interested in these new Protestant ideas, then you're going to think very kindly of Anne Boleyn. And if you are a Catholic who is very angry about the English Reformation, then you are not going to think very kindly of Anne Boleyn. So that's really how representations of her play out in both fiction um, and in uh, non-fiction. I, although when I say fiction of the time, it's poetry. Um, and when I say non-fiction, it's, it's largely kind of letters and diplomatic um, dispatches and so forth. So, yeah, she, she sort of becomes a kind of way of thinking through who you are and where you are in the world rather than a person in her own right. It's very hard to get a sense from the 16th century writing what she might have, have been like, so to speak, even though they were, you know, there and, and had access to her. And I think that's actually at the heart of why she's so fascinating because we know all these facts about her, right? We can tell you where she was on a certain day and uh, what she was doing and, and how she functioned kind of politically. But we can't tell you anything about her really except what people with their own kind of ideological axe to grind have said about her. So it's it's, it's really quite doubtful. And, um, or, or, you know, not kind of something that you'd want to rely upon because often people had a kind of political reason for engaging with her in a certain way and we have nothing of her we have no no letters of her own that aren't kind of business letters we have no insight into how she thought or felt i mean i i'm sure we could probably imagine how she felt as she faced her execution but we can't we don't have anything concrete upon which to stake our ideas about her it's interesting how so many of the themes that you talk about, especially in your later chapters, are there at the beginning. I was thinking about as you were describing it about how mm-hmm. she becomes a, a you know a, you know somebody in, in, to which we we project our, ourselves and project ideas. How that's you're very much true today. And yet, what was also fascinating was how you describe how uh, from her era, you know, going into the 17th century, how quickly the focus shifts to that religious element and how you described during what was a very uh, tumultuous century religiously, how that became the, the, the primary lens through which people chose to interpret her and her impact upon the world in which she lived. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as, 
as the world kind of devolved into a lot of religious conflict, she became this kind of symbol of thinking through um, religious conflict and religious strife between Catholics and Protestants. So, you know, as you moved into the 17th century, uh, you had people writing about her, but having to disguise writing about her in, in certain ways. So if you, if you weren't kind of staking your claim um, politically, then you would kind of disguise that you were talking about her. So what I'm thinking about here is in the, in the late 16th century, we got people um, writing about her in order to suck up to Elizabeth, basically, because her daughter Elizabeth is on, obviously on the throne of England. And so people would write about her as a kind of Protestant martyr in a, in a way of, uh, as a way of kind of currying favour with Elizabeth. Now, obviously, um, if you were a Catholic, you were thinking very differently about her. Um, so we had Catholic writers who were very angry about um, the, the English Reformation who were writing about her as this, you know, monstrous figure. So we had people like Nicholas Sander saying, for instance, um, that she had, you know, this hideous goiter and she had a sixth finger and all of the mythology of Anne Boleyn that we kind of still hold on to comes from this sort of late 16th century Catholic propaganda. Hello. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you dropped off there again. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, I, I, let me, no, no, no. Hold on. I, I make, I'm going to make a quick note about flagging that because I'm going to see yep. if we can take care of that in post. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry about that. So, uh, so far, by the way, I think, I think okay. the interview is going very well. So. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so you have this you know, focus that, that, that continues throughout the 17th century. And then you get to the 18th century and you have a number of changes. The, re, the religious element becomes uh, less predominant. You, you, you see a return more to the personal. But you also have this fascinating uh, development that you describe. You start to see the story of Anne Boleyn being written about by women. Not, not, and they don't predominate during this period, but you start to see women's interpretations of a woman beginning to appear in, in various forms. In what way does that start to shift the interpretation of Anne Boleyn? And, and, and what ways does it differ from the way that her, that uh, the men who were writing about Boleyn during this period were choosing to interpret her? Yeah, so in the 18th century, it was really interesting because you get what, as you say, a sort of secularization of Anne Boleyn. So instead of her being used as a kind of tool for... Um, to play out a kind of political argument, she becomes a woman. So you start to get this focus on her interiority, in how she felt, her emotions about all of this, about, and you, you start to get this speculation too about who she might have really loved because one of the assumptions of um, pretty much all Anne Boleyn fiction from, say, the 18th century to, through to today, with a few exceptions, is that she didn't love Henry. Okay, so she, she's not, this isn't a real love match. This is something else that's going on here. So what women start to do is they start to write novels about her. They start to write um, sort of biographies where there's a mixture of, of a kind of straight biography as we would think about it today, but more of a kind of fictionalized biography, a, a biography that is more about the kind of emotional aspect of her life rather than just the sort of facts. Um, one of the first women to write, well, the first woman to write an extended piece on her was still writing in... Um, she was writing in the, the late 17th century, but certainly if we take the definition of the long 18th century, it's starting in the 1680s. Um, we can count her in the 18th century. And that was Madame Dalnoy. And she was um, a, a French writer who was known for writing fairy tales, but she also wrote these kind of secret histories of, of um, French 
and English political figures. And he writes this this sort of sort of novel, sort of a early historical novel, um, called the Novels of Queen Elizabeth. And the the idea here is that Queen Elizabeth is looking for information about her mother. And so she asked somebody who's grown up with Anne, who knew Anne, to tell her the story of her of her mother. And then you get um, the rest of the novel, basically. So Elizabeth's there on like the first two pages. The rest of the novel or novella um, is about Anne. And what we get is we get a very sensitive Anne. We get a, um, a very spirited Anne. We get an Anne who wasn't in love with Henry, but who is in love with another man. Um, and this is a, a person called Henry Percy that we know in real life that Anne was tried to become betrothed to and that betrothal was blocked possibly by Henry VIII himself or possibly by Cardinal Wolsey. Um, and certainly we get this sense here that it's more interesting to think about Anne as a woman, to think about the kind of emotional dimensions of her life than it is to think about religion. And religion is kind of stripped out of the story. It's still there, but it's not as important as thinking about how Anne might have felt. And she's, she's certainly a victim still in this novel of... Catholic kind of machinations that lead to her fall but it's a very kind of sentimental tale it's supposed to you know move you to tears she's been separated from her true love and then she has this you know terrible marriage and then she's murdered right so you you sort of get that movement into the kind of more sentimental mode of the 18th century now obviously the 18th century is the time we associate with the rise of the novel so people were really using the, the tools that the novel allowed in order to tell Anne's story. And that meant more things like first-person narration, um, this more this turn to, towards the politics of what we might call sensibility, and the, the ability of women to write in greater numbers than ever before. So women did sort of take up her story and they were far more interested in, in thinking about her as a kind of sentimental figure than it had, had done been the case in the past. One one that I would really love to know because I think it's so much fun is Sarah Fielding. So Sarah Fielding was the sister of the 18th century novelist Henry Fielding. Mm-hmm. And she actually wrote a chapter of one of his books. And we know that she wrote this chapter, um, that it was her that was writing instead of Henry. And it's a it's a novel of his called A Journey from This World to the Next. And the, the conceit of the novel is that... Um, the main character goes to the afterlife and sort of talks to a bunch of people about their experiences. And in one chapter, the um, main character goes to the afterlife and meets up with Anne Boleyn. And she tells her life story. So this is a chance to, for Sarah Fielding to you know, to use the techniques of the novel, like first-person narration, um, in order to kind of get at the truth of what Anne Boleyn was or her interpretation of what the truth of Anne Boleyn was. And delightfully, Anne Boleyn sounds like a Jane Austen heroine. <laughs> she's very witty. She's very kind of jaded about men. She's like, okay, all these men were always interested in me. But then as soon as they had me, they were bored of me. So I had to, you know, kind of use what I had. And um, I wasn't interested in Henry, but I could see that he was. So I used my savvy to get what I wanted. Um, it's a very kind of world-weary Anne Boleyn. Obviously, she's dead, so I guess she has a good reason to be well <laughs> But it is a very... It's its just this really delightful, funny, also sad and really biting Anne Boleyn. And it's, it functions, you know, as a critique of the marriage market of the 18th century patriarchal world. So she's being used to voice these concerns that were very kind of current for Sarah Fielding in her mid-18th century moment. Um, 
and yet using that through the lens of the 16th century woman. It works beautifully and it's a lovely kind of encapsulation of what Anne Boleyn had come to mean to women. You know, a, a woman that they could relate to, a woman that they could um, see themselves in in various ways, I think. And that certainly is the case throughout the 18th century when women start to take up her story. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Uh, that to me is, is one of the things I find fascinating going back to that, that, that sense that I talked about at the beginning uh, that you convey uh, that, that you know, we, we have this outline of Anne Boleyn that we can fill, which is that there's so many elements of her biography that can fit into various times. I was thinking earlier when you were describing the, you know, she she has a love, she's forced to this marriage, it ends tragically. I, I, I was I was waiting for you to describe a, a gothic novel, and and yet you describe how you, that that same biography is adapted into something that we think that we associate more with the type of writing that Jane Austen wrote during this period. She seems to be so adaptable, and I was thinking that also comes that comes across increasingly when you get to the Victorian era, where you have what you know, struck me as a democratization of writing you describe not just the, the historical novels or the uh, or the nonfiction works that women were writing but you also describe this fascinating thing that I, I was unaware of which was how these you had these these domestic uh, plays that people were writing that you we had the, these elements of that we have these these reports about but we don't necessarily have the 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 plays themselves, we don't necessarily know if they were even performed in public, but they give, they're almost like the, the 18th, 19th century equivalent of, of, of fan fiction on the internet where people are able to have their own Anne Boleyn that they can then, uh, pre- that not just for themselves, but one that they want to then share with the, with their own public. Yeah, it's fascinating. As I, I obviously knew about a lot of the 19th century writing, but I wasn't aware of the 19th century plays. And you're right, they are very sort of small plays in the sense that we don't know if they were ever produced, most of them. We have no information about the the actual novelist. Many of these seem to have been um, written just for a family circle to participate in or a very small group of people to to dramatise. We get this huge influx of, of, of theatrical writing about Anne and subsequently, since I've, I've finished the book, there have been others that I have found, not necessarily, I haven't necessarily found a full script, but references to other kind of private theatricals or, or plays that were performed in kind of small theatres across the 19th century. So yes, there was a kind of democratisation of um, access or, or the willingness to, to talk about Anne Boleyn and to think about her in, in a fictional sense. And I think what's going on here is there was a rise of um, antiquarianism in the 19th century. So we had that real kind of development of the the kind of gentleman scholar who was interested in going back and looking at um, medieval in particular, but certainly early modern history as well, and and rediscovering um, that 
kind of history. And, and Anne Boleyn sits at a really interesting period of that 19th century obsession with medievalism because they could never quite figure out if she was a medieval person or if she was an early modern person. So you get this kind of um, discussion throughout these texts of whether she encapsulates the medieval world or whether she encapsulates the early modern world. And many people decide that she is at that pivot point, right? That she is the pivot point, the pivot person even, that turns the medieval kind of Catholic world of England into the Protestant world that the 19th century knew and lived in. And so she's a very kind of interesting and important figure in that sense. And I think that's what's going on for a lot of the kind of early dramatists um, that were writing about her. So say, for example, Henry Montague Grover or Henry Hart Millman, they both wrote novels that they both called Anne Boleyn. Um, most of these, uh, sorry, plays that they both called Anne Boleyn, um, most of these plays in the, in the um, 19th century are called Anne Boleyn. So imagine having to search for that online. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very confusing. They're all called Anne Boleyn, a tragedy. Um, so I think what's going on for them is they're writing from a Protestant perspective and many of these people were actually ministers or involved in the church in some way. And they are looking at her and saying, well, she's actually the pivot point upon which the medieval becomes the early modern, becomes the world that we know, because she forced Henry, I use forced there loosely, she forced Henry to, to um, move away from the superstitious world of Catholicism into the more rational world of Protestantism. And so they see her as a really important figure. They see her as somebody who died for her beliefs. They see her as somebody who prompted great social change, almost sort of accidentally. Okay, because Henry becomes interested in her because not because of any kind of intellectual, um, for, not for any intellectual reasons, but Henry becomes interested in her for her beauty and then sort of accidentally um, becomes involved with the world of Protestant belief. And so she is the fulcrum upon which that switch happens and the world in which they were living sort of became possible. So that I think that's got a lot to do with... Um, with what's happening with that, with the drama of the period. And I have to say, most of these dramas are completely unreadable <laughs> and would be impossible, would be impossible to stage today. There's, there's one of them, um, Henry Hart Millman, in which, you know, the, the action is, is completely interrupted um, for him to give, you know, a sermon, basically. Um, and she is so boring in these plays because she is just a kind of passive victim she is so virtuous she does nothing wrong um even when henry is you know looking to to put her aside um she doesn't complain you know there's one instance in which she comes upon henry um basically kissing jane seymour in the garden and she's like oh i'm sorry henry i'll run away you do what you want um so it's a very kind of different vision of anne boleyn than the one we've come to kind of embrace today but you can see how it would work for an, a 19th century audience. She's the, she's the kind of forerunner of the angel in the house. She's you know, virtuous. She's good. She's Protestant. She's rational. She's a victim. She dies young. You know, the 19th century loved nothing more than a young, dead woman, beautiful dead woman, right? So she becomes the kind of ideal person for the 19th century in various ways. It's interesting, too, you talk about the Gothic novel because, of course, she ends up there as well. <laughs> Her story is inherently Gothic. Um, you know, she's got everything really there already for the Gothic novel. She's, there's violence, there's, you know, sex, there's adultery. Um, there's all of the elements of the Gothic novel um, that you need. And so she turns up in, in these Gothic novels um, in the 19th century as well. And interestingly enough, 
they, those novels often have a kind of element of the supernatural to them. So we have something like Francis Latham's novel, um, Mystic Events, or uh, William Harris and um, Ainsworth's um, Westminster Abbey, not Westminster Abbey, it's Windsor Castle, rather. Um, and he, what happens in those novels is that there's a kind of supernatural patina put over Anne's story. So there will be the facts are given about what happens to Anne, but there's also kind of ghosts and demons and mystical love apples in these stories and what that allows you to do is to kind of suggest that the past was this kind of violent time of, of mysticism and fantasy you know think about how the about how the medieval has been associated with fantasy right this is a kind of associating slightly later than the medieval with fantasy as well and they're actually kind of an interesting forerunner to the more kind of you know Anne Boleyn as a vampire kind of gothic mashups you get today it's interesting how you that engagement that you're talking about with the the past really seems to take off in the 20th century. It's one of the things I enjoyed about it was that you're not just talking about ambulance representation of fiction. You're also talking about how fiction is changing and how the historical mm. novel or specifically uh, the uh, notion of historical romance really begins to mm. emerge as a form in the 20th century. And it seems that in so many ways, Anne Boleyn is an is a natural fit for that. She's that her story is well known, it's out there, and yet it's still, you know, uh, you know, moldable enough to where you can, you know, tell any number of different stories using it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the the the, the kind of thing that I realized as I was writing this book is that this book is a documentation of how fiction has changed, right? Because she just turns up in basically any any form that was popular in a particular moment in time and blends there, right? So, you know, I start out talking about poetry in the 16th century and I end up talking about, you know, fan fiction in the 21st <laughs> century. Um, so she sort of, it, it was a nice kind of way of getting a, like a little beginner's guide to um, to all all different kinds of forms um, and that were, you know, big particular moments. But yeah, certainly in the 20th century, historical fiction um, by women or the historical romance started to become the real popular genre and you know women were looking for fiction that appealed to their interests and during the the two world wars they might have been looking for you know escapism etc so what happened is that people started to write the domestic lives of women in the past write about the domestic lives of women in the past right and whose lives do we know about of women in the past they're often queens Right, or royal mistresses, or people, you know, women associated with royalty. And Anne Boleyn is, as you say, the absolute perfect person for such a writer to write about because, you know, her story has, you know, a love triangle element, perennially popular. Um, it has elements of, you know, forbidden love, again, perennially popular. We have a really messy breakup too. <laughs> um, so, perennially popular. So we start to get women like Jean Plady writing about her life, Margaret Campbell Barnes, etc. And they were often writing about other royal women as well. But certainly Anne Boleyn is the one that everybody writes about. And you're right, you can talk about any any kind of story. So she becomes this kind of figure of a kind of proto-feminist potential. So you, even from, say, before the rise of second wave feminism in the 1960s, in these kinds of early century, early 20th century historical novels, you start to get her thinking about what we would now call women's rights. So you start to get her articulating this idea that it's really unfair the way that she's been treated, that um, men can get away with things that women can't, that she has no way of kind of negotiating the world because what do you do 
if you're a woman in Henry VIII's court and Henry VIII becomes interested in you, you can't say, no thanks, mate. (laughs) Right? You know, (laughs) as much as you would like to, if Henry VIII becomes interested in you, what are you going to do? Well, there are two ways you can, there are two roads you can kind of go down. You can become his mistress and you know you're disposable. Um, Or, you can hold out for more, and that is also its own kind of complication, right? So you get this kind of developing sense in things like um, Jean Plady's Murder Most Royal, and Jean Plady is probably a name that your listeners would be familiar with. Certainly when I talk about Jean Plady, I get certainly women um, say to me, oh, yes, I love Jean Plady. I grew up reading her novels. Um, hugely prolific historical novelist, and she writes in Murder Most Royal about... Anne Boleyn is a kind of forerunner of, of what we would now see as feminist. You know, she has a real intelligent kind of understanding of the different ways that men and women are allowed to move through the world and the different the double standards that men and women are subjected to, how women are thought about in terms of sex, etc. And so, you know, it, you sort of get this sense that she can speak, Anne Boleyn can speak to a kind of 20th century woman about these parts of their lives that they can relate to. Now, obviously, 20th century women were li- living completely different lives to that lived by Anne Boleyn. But you get that real sense that we can make Anne Boleyn relatable. And that idea of relatability is really, I think, quite central to the 20th century writing, and certainly the 21st century writing as well, about her, that she's relatable, that her interests or the, the, the forces that, that shaped her life are ones that are still visible and, and present in women's lives in the 20th century. And that gets to something that you, you don't uh, address directly, but is, is always, which, which is applied throughout your book, which is how the audience for all these works change. How you're talking about an audience that, that seems predominantly thought of as a male audience in the 16th, 17th, you know, into the 18th century. And, and by the time that you get to the 20th century, these you're, you're talking about works that, that, seem, that, that, that seem to try be reaching out to you know what would interest a, a, a woman as a reader or as a member of an audience in terms of, of, of the elements of Anne's life and, and the parts of Anne's life that 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 the writer or the composer is choosing to stress. Absolutely, you see that you see that real shift. Say in the mid twentieth century, there is almost no men writing about Anne Boleyn after nineteen fifty, right? In terms of fiction, you really do get the complete takeover of her story by women. And that means that things like politics and religion are stripped out of her story. Now, I'm not saying there that women aren't interested in writing about politics and religion or they're not interested in reading about politics and religion. What I'm suggesting is that the genre of historical romance is more interested in other elements of a woman's life, is more interested in the domestic, in marriage, in all of those sorts of elements of a woman's life. Um, And so those elements are stressed. And certainly this idea that she was in love elsewhere is stressed. Okay, so you get the return of Henry Percy um, as the great love of Anne's life and sometimes Thomas Wyatt is the great love of Anne's life or somebody else is the great love of Anne's life. Um, you get that, that, that focus on love and again we see the stripping out of religion from her story. So there is, you know, there, it's, it's there. It's not like we ignore the English Reformation altogether but it's not the predominant interest of these novels and that's because they're being written for a different audience. They're being written to conform to the genre conventions of a different kind of historical fiction, of a historical fiction that was marketed towards women who were looking for stories about love, courtship, marriage, children, etc. in a historical setting. So you don't necessarily get that real focus on politics. 
I, I was thinking it also comes across in, in another way you mentioned uh, that I didn't really think about until you brought it near the end of the book, which is how you don't even start getting first person uh, uh, novels uh, or works about Anne until you get to even late into the 20th century. And, and that strikes me as, as this kind of thing that, that you know, a lot of men might have found very unrelatable, but was, you know, you know, had a certain idea of the audience very much in mind by that point that would have been unthinkable, say, 50, 75, 100 years previously. Yeah, absolutely. You sort of, you really do get this shift to the first person narrative that is obviously designed to kind of speak to women as, you know, I, this is my experience, you know, compare it directly to yours. And, and certainly, even if you go into the 1920s, you go back to the 1920s, that wasn't there um, in the fiction. And the, the best example of that kind of shift in terms of narration, is that you get Jean Plady return to Anne's story. So she's already written a novel about her in the 1940s, and then she goes back in the 1980s towards the end of her career, and she rewrites it in the first person. And that is because there is this shift in the genre to these kind of first-person kind of confessional accounts. We get a real sense of um, a historical romance or the historical novel being written as a confessional you know, these are my secrets that I'm revealing to you as the as the reader. And that brings the reader into a very close communion with Anne Boleyn, right? You're, you're in her head. You understand how she thinks and feels. It is a really good way of making you feel like you're on her side and that you're involved in a kind of secret um, communication of her thoughts and feelings. And you, you know her better than anybody else because you've got this this insight into her. And I think that has to do, actually, with a lot of why people are so keen to tell me about their love of Anne Boleyn. <laughs> it's because we start to get these really emotional, empathetic kind of um, explorations of her secrets. And people read these, and they, they do feel drawn in to her kind of inner world, and they feel like they know her, and that they understand her story in a way that other people don't. Now, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on people who read fiction and feel that way. That is exactly what fiction is supposed to do. That's a sign that, you know, you've, read, you've written a good novel. Um, and I certainly think that the way in which Anne Boleyn has, has come to be a kind of central kind of emotional touchstone for a lot of women has a lot to do with that real shift to the first person, that real shift to this sense that Anne Boleyn is telling you her secrets um, that we see in the latter, the latter part of the 20th century. You also have, of course, in the 20th century, the explosion of other forms of entertainment. You have movies, you have television, mm -hmm. and then, of course, at the very end, you start having the internet, which really opens up the number of, of avenues for people to put out their idea or, or their a version of Anne Boleyn. And it's interesting to think about how those works, uh, you know, it, it, in some ways, you know, offer a new medium for, for representations of Anne Boleyn, but also it, it struck me, they, they lock them in in certain ways that are, that make them very influential and, and yet at the same time very, very inflexible. Yeah, so you, in terms of film and television, she, she sort of turns up quite early, so that the, the most kind of famous film, the earliest kind of most famous film that she appears in is The Private Life of Henry VIII in the 1930s, the kind of infamous um, Charles Lawton film in which he, you know, eats chicken and throws the bones over his, <laughs> over his shoulder. Um, she's in that film very briefly, um, but you do get a sense there of a certain kind of narrative about Anne Boleyn emerging. She's very intelligent. We're told she was quite um, ambitious, and ambition is a huge touchstone in novels about Anne Boleyn. This idea of Anne Boleyn is almost a forerunner of the ambitious career woman. Um, and you get a kind of um, 
censored Anne Boleyn as a woman who was punished for what she was celebrated for. So these ideas about ambition and power are exactly what attracted Henry to her because she was much more intelligent and much more kind of savvy than other women of her time. But at the same time, that's what kind of soured him on her. So that kind of understanding of Anne really does become quite concrete in film and television. So and a film that maybe some of your listeners would, would know is Anne of the Thousand Days, which was a late 1960s film, Genevieve Bujold as, as Anne. And again, we see there um, in that film this idea of Anne as a very feisty, very intelligent, very high-spirited woman, basically a modern woman, right? And again, we see that idea that that's what attracted Henry to her because she was so different from other women of the Henrician court. But also that's what undoes her, right? And so you, you get that sense here that women can't win because if they are different in some ways, that marks them out as special, but it also marks them out as a problem. And I think that the way that Genevieve Bujold um, represents Anne in that film, it's very 1960s, it's very of its time, very kind of second wave feminist. But I think that actually feeds back into the fiction because then after the, after the film and the success of the film, hugely successful film, nominated for Oscars, um, then you start to get novels that read exactly like that film. So the novels and the films are talking to each other and really presenting this sense that that is what Anne was. Anne was this kind of ambitious, savvy, power-hungry woman who was different from other women. And we get that idea over and over again in the novels that she was not compliant, that she was feistier, she was more flirtatious, she was more intelligent, she was less likely to be the good tutor woman and shut up. And she was you know, maybe too feisty for Henry, maybe too willing to push back, maybe she didn't know her place, and that was her problem. See, you get fiction and, and um, film and television feeding into each other, and certainly I think that has continued into the 21st century, where you get a, a, a series like uh, Showtime's The Tudors, um, where you have Natalie Dormer as, as Anne Boleyn. I'm sure plenty of your listeners would be familiar with that series. <laughs> and again, I think the way that she's represented in that series has come to shape the fiction after it. So I think you get an, a lovely dialogue that's sort of playing out there between the fiction and the, his, and the, um, the film and television that is played out all throughout the 20th century. You can see the way that people are thinking about films and television in the actual novels themselves. Sometimes quite explicitly, there is a, a novel, uh, a two-volume series of novels about, about Anne Boleyn that are uh, dedicated to Natalie Dormer, huh. who is the actress who played Anne Boleyn in The Tudors. So there is sometimes a quite explicit acknowledgement that, yes, film and television is shaping my understanding of Anne. It, we also have with film and television something that we couldn't have with the earlier plays, which is we can actually see the performance. I mean, you write about the plays, mm. you, you write about, and we already talked about how the Victorians, we don't even know, uh, you know, necessarily if they were produced, but here we have this mm. performance that is, that so we can see an, a, an interpretation by an actor which takes the written text and actually puts a unique spin on it. As you uh, describe in your book, Natalie Dormer is, 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 you know, it has talked about how she has chosen to play Anne Boleyn, and, and that's something that we can't possibly really get a hold of when we're talking about these earlier performances in, 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 in uh, decades past. Yeah, absolutely. Natalie Dormer has been quite um, 
willing and, and effusive in talking about the way that she interpreted Anne Boleyn. And what she actually interestingly says is in the first series of The Tudor, in the first season of The Tudor, the Tudors, is that they played her very much like the, the femme fatale, the sexy other woman, you know, the woman who's sexier and younger, who comes in and destroys a man's sort of long-standing relationship to, with his wife who is getting on a bit, right? So the, the, the way that she's represented in the first season of that show is very kind of... Um, stereotypical and she talks about that actually what she's done is that she's read a lot about Anne Boleyn she's kind of imbibed these understandings of Anne Boleyn as a modern woman and she has fed that back into the show and so she she agitated for a kind of more um, nuanced representation a, a representation of Anne Boleyn that sort of stressed her intelligence that stressed her power that stressed her interest in politics and her interest in religion and that's back into the show and the way that she was represented in the show which I think is really interesting and she's certainly you know given lots of interviews she's talked to academics about this so she has really kind of um, been quite active in in shaping how we think about Anne Boleyn and in terms of representations that have been seen the Tudors is really important because we have two series two seasons of the series in which to play out her story so we have I don't know, 20 hours or something like that of film of Anne Boleyn, right, versus a feature film which is over in two hours, you know, just over two hours. So in terms of just seeing the kind of physicality of Anne Boleyn, there are a few texts that have been as influential. And, you know, there are a lot of criticisms of that show. It is not particularly historically accurate. It is quite salacious. There is a lot of, you know, softcore porn scenes. <laughs> I suppose I would... I would describe them as, um, you know, it has its, its, um, it has its own kind of particular appeal. But I think that people have singled her out as a particular strength of that show, and I think quite fairly, because she does bring a kind of uh, real knowledge of her subject, and she did kind of go into it with a certain agenda, I think, in, in her representation of Anne. And so I think that makes it a really interesting representation both in and of itself, but also because it has fed into our contemporary understanding where we are today with Anne Boleyn, I think, in, in a very marked way. And yet it's it's fascinating how something like that, you know, in decades past might have been as influential as Genevieve Bougeot's interpretation of Anne Boleyn and Anne of a Thousand Days. But nowadays, because mm. you have so many people writing about Anne Boleyn, that, that point you made earlier about how we have more representations of Anne Boleyn in the past twenty years than we've had in, in the previous century, that we that it's that it's not becoming it's not such so much of a gravitational mass. It's not warping everything around it to, to conform to that. That instead we're getting all of these uh, different representations of Anne in, in, in as you described in the chapter about like trans uh, generic fiction, where you're you're seeing you know Anne Boleyn is being repurposed as a young adult figure. Uh, she's being repurposed mm-hmm. in, in, in all these different ways that that you know, show how it, we're, that, you know, we're not going to be cleaving to a particular interpretation or a particular theme, but we're running in second wave feminism, post-feminism, and, and you could almost have mm. your choice of Anne Boleyn nowadays. Yeah, exactly, because, you know, the internet has allowed people to do things like write fan fiction or self-publish their novels or, um, you know, we have the rise of Christian publishing, so we actually get a return to that idea of Anne Boleyn as a real um, Protestant martyr figure. So we get, you know, people writing mark, uh, fiction for the Christian market that brings religion back into Anne's story. So you get a huge variety of representations of Anne. I also suggested earlier that most novels assume that Anne didn't love Henry, 
we get a return to this idea of Anne and Henry as the great this great love story. Uh, we we get all sorts of of Anne's emerge in the in the twenty first century, and that is because there is such access to her access to information about her. So you know you can as a aspiring historical novelist, you can go online and read documentation from Henry VIII's era without having to go to England and spend time in the archives, right? You also have an immense amount of material that historians have written that is easily accessible from anywhere in the world. We have um, the rise of fandom. So especially after the Tudors, but certainly um, throughout the past 20 years, we have a, a kind of enthusiastic online fandom of Anne Boleyn. People who are fans of this woman from history and who are going to write about her in various ways. So they're going to write you know, histories of her, biographies of her, um, and as well as historical novels. And they congregate on certain websites and talk about elements of her life. And often they will do things like they will go to historical sites associated with her, like they might go to Hever Castle where she grew up and do a kind of Anne Boleyn tour. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, I'm about to start work on another project on um, the use of anachronism in contemporary historical fiction. So um, I was particularly excited by a lot of the more um, modern historical fiction that I was reading that used really innovative um, methods of exploring historical figures. So that's what I'm thinking about now. Um, contemporary historical fiction and especially film and television, such as the series Dickinson, which uses a lot of contemporary language and contemporary music to represent historical stories. So that's my next project, but I'm just at the point of starting, so nothing really has been done yet. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. I, I hope that when you uh, finish with it, you can uh, come back on one of our podcasts. That would be a delight. Well, Stephanie Russo, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. That was such a pleasure. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.